Good morning, everyone. I'm going to reminisce for a couple of minutes, seeing we're going backwards in time. I think I was probably present at the first time that How Great Thou Art was ever sung in Australia. In 1955, which was four years before the Billy Graham crusade, an American came, an American evangelist came to Sydney University and there was great controversy about that at the time. I can't even remember his name. I was doing my diploma in education year and they had a choir and they had an American to lead the choir and one day at rehearsal he said, there's a new song just come and he said it's had an interesting story but it's just hit America and I think it would be nice if we sang it and he threw the copies to the choir and it was How Great Thou Art. So I believe it was sung for the first time in Australia in 1955 but that's just a little bit of my old age remembrance. Um, Peter, I have forgotten the clicker. Oh, it's all right, don't worry, Rosemary will do it, thank you. It's all right, don't worry. Okay. (laughs) Oh. Don't worry about it because it's not many slides. Now, the older I get, the more convinced I am that before we start ripping the words off the page of Scripture and applying them to Western culture in 2019 or whatever the current year is, it's imperative that we look at what those words first said to the hearers, the first hearers. They were not written to us. And there are eternal, timeless truths for all cultures and all people and all times in these words of Scripture. But if we just take those words straight out of their context, we're actually going to miss a lot of what those truths are. We need to see it in the original context and work out what was being said. And there is no greater example in Scripture than this one that we're looking at this morning as we work our way through Colossians. And Andy has correctly titled it, A Christian Household. Paul talks about husbands and wives, fathers and children, masters and slaves. When we get to the masters and slaves bit, that's not going to work. The only way we can apply that to our current culture is to talk about our work situation. But when Paul was writing, most households had a slave or two, or if they they were doing work, the work was in the house, related to the household anyhow. So this is all about relationships within the Christian household. Before we look at what Paul says, I cannot emphasize strongly enough that the idea of equality was completely unknown in the first century. Various groups of people read these words of Paul and we get all excited and upset about what he says because we try to see it in line with our current culture. 
but you have to go back 2,000 years. There was no equality and nobody thought that there should be equality and neither did they go on thinking that there should be any equality for a long, long time after. Equality between the sexes, equality of our place in society and so on is a very new idea and it comes out of our Christian experience and teaching but it was not in first century culture. So you must read your, your minds of any thought that this is written to a society that understood and accepted equality, they didn't. What I do want to show you in these words is the actual revolutionary things that Paul was saying that because we read them from our cultural context, we miss entirely. And in order to help us do that, I've done something with this passage. I've not altered a word that Paul said. The words are there. But I've altered the order. I've put the men first, men and then their wives, fathers and then their children, masters and their slaves, because I want us to understand how this hit people in the first century and I think you'll get it if we see if we read it this way so Rosemary can we have the first one thank you and then we'll just keep going husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them wives submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord fathers do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is our serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favouritism. Uh, we'll go back to that first one in Colossians. Thanks, Rosemary. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, in our 21st century idea of marriage, we just read over that because that's what we expect. But let me say, this has got nothing to do with romantic love. The word here for love is the word agapeo. Agape love. I cannot describe for you what effect this must have had on the men in the first century when they read these words, whether they were Jewish, Roman or Greek. Men did not love their wives in that sense of agape in the first century. Wives were there to produce children and run the household and that was that. Men found their interests and their romantic interests elsewhere. 
And in fact, one reference that I read said that the position of marriage was so bad in first century Judaism that a significant number of young Jewish women were refusing to get married. The alternative was prostitution or starvation. There were no jobs. There was no other way a woman could keep herself. When her father died, that was it. She literally faced prostitution or starvation. And the institution of marriage was so bad that they were prepared for that rather than face marriage. A Jewish man could divorce his wife for burning the dinner. A Jewish woman had virtually no ability to divorce a husband. Greek women lived entirely within the house. They hardly ever went out on the streets. And in fact, in the, Jew- in the Jewish world, the word to be on the streets for a woman, to actually go and walk along the streets, was the same word as prostitution. Women were confined to the house. Women in Jewish culture at this time, women had a position not much better than slaves. They were regarded as chattels. They had no rights, they had no authority, they had nothing. So for Paul to turn around and say to men, Agapeo, your wives... Love them. But that agape is to put the needs of the other person above your own. It's not just to have a romantic thought about them every now and again. It's not just to be kind to them when you think of it. It is to consider what that other person needs and try your best to meet those needs without becoming a doormat or a slave. There's nowhere in the New Testament that tells us that we have become doormats to each other. But this is absolutely revolutionary. We cannot understand how this must have turned the thinking of Jewish and Roman and Greek men upside down at the time. It's a totally new thought. But the eternal truth is there for all cultures and all times. Husbands, put the needs of your wife above your own when necessary and do not be harsh with them. You know, I think that there are two things in our culture that make it difficult for Christian men to do this. One is our current work culture. And if I can separate a part of that work culture and think about the armed forces for a moment, that must be the most difficult thing for a soldier who has been in service in Afghanistan and has put um, all his loyalty to his other mates because that's how you save your life. That's how you're going to save your life and their life. How on earth you put that aside and come back and now give your wives this place, I do not know. And we have a culture of work that demands 24-7 attention. We're never away from work because we've got computers and emails and phones and everything else and work can interfere with our family life. 
I also think that in Australia we are a culture that that encourages hobbies. Now, it's good for everybody. It's good for men to have hobbies and interests. I'm not saying that's wrong. But there is part of our culture that says put your hobbies and interests first as well. And I am not going to stand here as a woman and start telling men how to order your lives. But what I am going to say is what Paul is saying here is get your priorities right. And that is an exceedingly difficult thing to do. It was in the first century and it is in the 21st century. I'm not saying that lightly. It's a challenge to get your priorities right. Loving and serving God first, then your wife. Above your children, your wife, then your children, then work and everything else. And it has to be got into line somehow. And if you need help, Seek it. Australian men are terrible at asking for help. It is not a sign of weakness or failure to ask for help. It's to admit that this is a problem I am facing. And in fact, if you just, if you're not asking for help and you've got difficulty, then goodness me, please Ask for help if you are having difficulty with this. Ask us to pray for you. Ask your home groups to pray for you because I think this is an extraordinarily difficult thing to put into practice in our culture now. Then he goes on to talk about... Oh no, sorry, can we have the Ephesians one? Now... (laughs) I stood here a few months ago and spoke about these verses from Ephesians, but I didn't talk about the husbands and wives a bit. I talked about what Jesus had done. And now I'm, I'm pleased to be able to kind of redress the balance and see what Paul is saying about husbands and wives in this, because this is the standard for men to love their wives. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. There's the standard. As Christ laid down his life. When I spoke before about this passage, it was talking about how highly Jesus values the church. Well, now let's go back to the emphasis that Paul was putting on. This is how highly a husband is to value his wife. And I have to say, I've stood here and said that Eric and I had many difficulties in our marriage, and that's true. But for nearly 60 years, I was married to a man who would cheerfully have laid down his life for me had the occasion arose. I knew that. I knew the depth of his love for me. But this is the standard that is expected of Christian husbands. But there's another sting in the tail in these verses. Look who is being asked to submit. Now, I know that we've had the Colossians bit about wives submit to your husbands. I've been beaten around the head with that many times in the past. We've got Christian feminists jumping up and down about it. But look at what Paul says in Ephesians. 
Who is to submit? Everyone. Men and women. This isn't about women submitting to the power and authority of men. This is Paul saying there are times when we all need to put aside our own needs and think about the needs of other people. Not just for women. So if we come back, Rosemary, to that first slide from Colossians and now say, verse 18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, can you see that in a totally different light? This is not something to beat Christian women around the head with at all. This is just taking our part in relationships. There are times when it is necessary for men to submit their own needs. There are times when it's, it's appropriate for women to submit. The way to have a successful marriage is not, as Eric used to constantly quote, two words, yes dear. The way to have a successful marriage is for me to endeavour to meet the needs of my husband and my husband to endeavour to meet my needs. Not me demand that he'll meet my needs. And unfortunately, that's what happens in many modern marriages. People go into a marriage with the assumption that the partner will meet my needs. And that's why so many marriages fail. Our Christian standard here is I will do my best to meet your needs and then you will do your best to meet mine. But let's go on to fathers and children. Now, this was a society where it didn't matter what culture it was, fathers had supreme authority over their families. In fact, in Roman culture, the Roman father inspected a newborn baby and said whether it would live or not whether he would accept it into the family. If there were too many girls, particularly, then the unwanted child would be left out on a hillside somewhere, exposed was the the, uh, technical word for it. It would either die of exposure, be eaten by wild animals, or picked up by somebody to be taken as a slave. So that was the power of the Roman father. We know about the power of Jewish fathers. So this was a society where fathers were all powerful. So look at what Paul is saying. Do not embitter your children. This could have come out of a a 21st century handbook on successful parenting. It's exactly the same or they will become discouraged. Now, to come forward to modern times, in my sessions of prayer ministry, and I've done hundreds of them, over and over and over again, two problems have come up with children, well, adult children now, thinking back to the problems that they had with their fathers when they were young. One of those problems is the obvious one of the father abusing the child. 
in some way. I don't just mean sexual abuse, but emotional abuse or physical abuse. And that, that has left this person scarred. They've had great difficulty in trying to come to terms with that. But the other thing is the absence of the father. Now, that might be through death or divorce or a single mother in the first place, the actual physical absence of a father. Often it's the absence of a father who is long hours at work and never seems to be at home for the child. But it can be the emotional absence of the father. There are plenty of people who've told me that their father was around, but he did not connect with them. He was emotionally distant and particularly people who were bullied at school or perhaps mistreated by their mothers, and I've asked them, where was your father when all of this was happening? He wasn't in the modern parlance. He wasn't there for them. Children have to not only see the father physically present, but actually on their side, looking after them, fighting in their corner, helping to protect them when they are young. So that we're fulfilling exactly what Paul says. Don't embitter your children. Don't discourage them. Be a father to them. And the word is children. And that's children. We're not talking about the 55-year-old biological children of 85-year-old parents here. We're talking about children under 12. Okay, now that's one thing and that's a whole story in our culture about how we treat children under 12. There's nothing said here about late teenagers or people in their 20s still living at home and the problems the parents have with their adult children still living at home or the problems that parents have with their teenagers because that was not known in the first century. Girls were married at about 14 or so. Boys were from from 12, 13, 14. Boys were often um, learning their father's trade. They were in an adult world. In fact, the word teenager was only coined in my adult years. I can remember hearing the word teenager for the first time and it was in a Christian song. From the age of 15, when I was 15, I continued on at school but the majority of people from the age of 15 were thrust out into an adult world. They were not seen as children anymore. They were young adults in an adult world. So our current Western culture of keeping our young people like children for years provides us with a problem, and Scripture is not helpful in this, because it was not, a, it was not like that in the first century. We've got to work out how to do it. And that's not easy either. None of this is easy. We have to work out how to do that. All right, well, let's proceed on to slaves and masters. (laughs) Now, people get terribly uppity at Paul because they say, well, here's Paul. Why isn't Paul fulminating against slavery? Why isn't Paul saying slavery is wrong? Jenny's just given us the answer. I don't want to hear anybody saying that. We've probably got as many slaves in the world today as they had in the days of the Roman Empire. And that's, that's an alarming number of people who go into slavery newly every month. 
Never mind about Paul, what are you doing about slavery? What am I doing about it? That's our challenge. Never mind what Paul said. Christians formed less than 1% in the Roman Empire. It was not a democratic system. They had no voice. There was no way Christians could have um, spoken up against uh, slavery even if they had wanted to. What Paul is doing is taking a situation as it was and telling Christian people how to behave in that situation that was there in their culture. And again, what does he say? Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Now, that was a revolutionary thought. It's not the women who are being beaten about the head in this passage, it's the men. It's Paul who is telling the men, you need to be leading a whole different lifestyle if you're a Christian. Your relationships need to be completely different from the world around you. Slaves were treated just however you wanted to. Slaves had no rights. You didn't consider them to be human beings. You just treated them as you wanted to. And here is Paul saying, Treat them right and fair. And so if we want to go into 21st century culture, how many people in our workplaces, how many employers are currently doing this, treating their employees in a right and fair manner, never mind slaves? There's a challenge there for Christian employers. And then his instructions to slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Well now, of course, slaves would get away with whatever they could. They would do as little as they possibly could because of the conditions they lived in. Here's Paul saying, no, whatever you're doing, work at it to the Lord. You're not just working for an earthly master. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And we can take that with us into our 21st century living no matter what we're doing. If you're sweeping the floor and cleaning the toilet, do it for the Lord. It's our standard for work. We may not be slaves, but it's our standard for work. It may not be work you enjoy doing. Changing pooey nappies at 2 o'clock in the morning is not enjoyable. But we are doing it for the Lord. We're not even doing it for the person that we're serving. We are actually serving Christ. If we can see that as the motivation for everything we're doing, how will that change our culture in the church? And what influence can we have on those around us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the kingdom of heaven where all are equal, where there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, but you accept us all equally. Father, we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit and your grace and everything that we need to serve the Lord Christ in this world.
to find out how to be good husbands and wives, how to be good parents and children, how to be good employers and employees. But Father, help us to work through and find our priorities and help us that our lives might show the reality of the transformation that you bring. Help us to be lights to those around us. And Lord, for anyone who has a problem in any of these areas, may we be brave enough to find help. May we be brave enough to ask other people to pray for us and seek the help that we need. Lord, that we might all be good servants and good children of yours. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.